The interviews in this podcast, all of which are ultimately uplifting stories of human transformation, may contain general discussions of depression, trauma, violence, abuse, or cultural and racial bias. On this episode of Shift Shift Bloom, I went to northern India, and the, it was in going there that you know I met Tibetan refugees, and they talked about yaks and all that kind of thing. It got me interested to the point that when I came back one time, I thought, well, I can try to find one. And so uh, I did. I found one in Ohio, and the guy sold it to me. And turns out you can't buy one yak because they'll see you as a predator. So the first day was great. The second day, the thing tried to kill me. From engineer to yak rancher and many other titles in between, it might look like Greg Dyke's career changes are merely a patchwork of where the wind took him. But as our conversation reveals, it's clear that each chapter in Greg's story has been guided by the common thread of values he lives and believes in. I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, a podcast about how people change. My guest today is Greg Dyke. That's the Reverend Dr. Greg Dyke to you. He grew up outside of Syracuse, New York, and has traveled extensive geographical and professional terrain. No joking here, Greg has been an engineer, a minister, and a nurse, both in the ER and in the prison system, among other things. Today, Greg and his wife, Linda, run Zeba Shinga Yak Ranch in Wellington, Kentucky, the first of its kind in the state where they work to increase awareness of the sustainability of yak farming and encourage more farms to raise these hardy creatures themselves. I am personally delighted to talk to someone who seems to normalize the career change at any stage, for me and all of us who might not always fit in or want to fit in one professional box. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So I, it's not maybe fair to start out with this question. But since the podcast is about change and you've gone through all of these rather large career changes, and I think some of them have taken you to different places in the country and the world, it makes me wonder, are you built for change, at least on that professional level, in a way that most people are not? Uh, I'm not sure how other people are built, but I think I'm built for change. I Mm. think uh, that's just... uh, part of who I am and has always always have been, uh, that that's needed uh, in my life sort of to keep me stimulated and going. And even within the different parts of my life or segments of it, uh, to build change within what I'm doing is, is important. Is that a quality that you recognize or could recognize in yourself at a young age? No. I mean, I had no idea. I think you, I think you uh, probably see it looking back. Uh, mm. I, the one thing I can remember is always being amazed by people who knew what they wanted to do, for sure. They would tell you what they would be doing 20 years down the road, and I couldn't think of what I'd be doing, you know, two minutes later, probably. You grew up outside of Syracuse, New York, in a rural area? Yes. And you said 
At least your dad, I think, was an academic. Uh, eventually, my mother was too. I mean, in terms okay. of teaching at university level. Uh, but yes. Yeah. What specifically did they teach? English literature. So tell me a little bit about growing up in that household. I'm curious about, you know, there's, it seems like there's this side of your parents that were artistic or artistic leaning, but then they were in this rather traditional life path, which academia can be. What was it like growing up in that household? Well, well, I'm not sure that they, they fit the, the normal mold. I mean, within their uh, careers, I sent, you know, they did. My father, uh, once he got his, his doctorate, stayed at Syracuse University pretty much all his, well, all of his life. Although, the interesting thing is, the, before he died, he said the most uh, exciting teaching he did was at uh, Auburn State Prison where he worked with inmates on writing. Most university professors and so on, you know, live 13 blocks from the university and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a brick house with a lot of trees or something, but at least back at that time. He, on the other hand, lived, you know, out in the country, basically in a rundown farm, uh, and his, his thing was horses. And the only reason, as the story goes, that he finished his doctorate was that he broke both legs in an in a accident with a horse. And, you know, had nothing better to do. So he was the, uh, kind of the odd person in the, in the rural area, you know, because the university professor who has the rundown place and the old tractor and the old cars who never buy anything, you know, within 20 years of being new. And, uh, you know, my mother at the time, uh, you know, she was sort of, I mean, she could ride very well, but she was more sort of the, uh, the grounds crew and that sort of thing. She she worked in social services for a while and then went and uh, became dean at uh, Kirkland College, which was the uh, the women's component of Hamilton College when it okay. first opened, and then later taught English literature there as well. So it was a it was not a traditional university family kind of thing. It was more like that's a strange family, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, the parties that they would have with university people and the writers they knew were, were you know, probably quite interesting parties, but I was you know, sort of too young to appreciate them other than noticing that there's a lot of arguing that went on, that sort of thing, and a lot of drinking, of course. <laughs> Did you like growing up on a farm with horses? I enjoyed the horses, but not in the way they did. There, there was plenty of land, so you know, could trail ride, and my sister and I would trail ride. She was the one who rode in the fox hunt. I was the one who really was not interested. Okay. And she was the one who showed, and I was not interested in that. I was actually more interested in, in cattle for some reason, you know, which was not, did not fit the family image or whatever. You know, that was not my father's interest, but, you know, he tolerated it kind of thing. But, uh, you know, for me, horses were were fun to be around and do things with. But you know, the uh, the pressure, the the competitive nature of showing that competitive side of things, which was you know, my father was part of, w- was not of interest to me. Mm. Yet you went into a STEM field. You went into engineering to start out with, which seems like it might have an aspect of being competitive. Is that? True or no, it wasn't for you? No, no, no. I mean, you know, when when I was, you know, finishing, getting toward the end of high school, the, the understanding in the household was you'll get good grades, you'll go to college. 
beyond that, it was pretty pretty wide open. But okay. I think the understanding was you'll you know work in the humanities and be involved in the humanities. And my interest at that time was not there. And you know mathematics and science were pretty easy. So that was like, well, you know, what are you going to do? Well, I might as well go to engineering school. You know, for for lack of having any good solid input or anything like that. Was that a disappointment for your parents when you went that route instead of the humanities route? Oh, it certainly was to my father. That was an absolute betrayal. I mean, that was, you know, an evil thing. You know, he he was pretty much a pacifist. Although he was in World War II, he uh, he was a conscientious objector, and when given the choice between prison or going, you know, going in the infantry, I guess the, you know he became a medic and actually was okay. a part of a group that liberated some of the concentration camps. Wow! And uh, so his 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 position was one of pretty much nonviolence, but he he would be very strong in that stance. Uh, so I think the engineering side really represented not a good side of life. Vietnam was 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 going on, and you know anything you heard about was the latest weaponry and that sort of thing, and that was not good in his book or mine particularly. But yet, did your first job take you into some military capacity? It did. I needed a actually when I was at the university, I protested against the company I ended up working for. Wow. Uh, but uh, you know, at a certain point, you need a job. And, you know, I knew the area, I knew that company, and I called them up and said, you have an opening, and they took me. And so I worked on computer uh, modeling projects for a couple years, and then switched over to the social sciences division, which was doing things with uh, energy conservation. Hmm. It strikes me as an interesting uh, commonality, maybe, or, or a thread between you and your dad that he protested against the war and ultimately had to join, chose to join, and you protested against this company and ultimately needed a job and took it. Well, he, he had to join because it was, you know, the choice was prison. I mean, he could have taken that, that route. Uh, I could have looked for a job elsewhere, and it was, it was probably as much convenience as anything else. And, you know, uh, realizing that I was sort of selling out in that moment it was a good place to work in terms of learning, uh, not about military industrial things or even the, but just uh, going from the theoretical to the applied. It was, you know, that was good. And just the, you know, problem solving is a real interesting thing, no matter what the problems are. So actually, you know, and that's something that carries through. In most areas, and it certainly has in every area of my life, be it within the church or within the acts, uh, is that I think the ability to analytically look at things and think about them and try to resolve things or figure out how to move forward is a, a key thing. You know, and that's probably the, the other side of, you know, partly why you know, the moving on part of my life is you get bored. And so, you know, probably within everything I've done, I've gone looking to to sort of push things yeah, to, to create the more interesting problem <laughs> or find the more interesting problem to deal with. So was it ultimately partially boredom, I would guess, that moves you out of engineering towards ministry? All along through the whole thing, when I was in college, 
uh, is the whole the whole issue of social justice, and that's always been there. And that was there in college. You know, I did uh, voter registration in Mississippi, and uh, you know things in terms of Vietnam War and so on. But I was very fortunate in undergraduate school that uh, at Syracuse University at that time, the engineering department probably had the most creative social justice group of faculty on campus. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're amazing people. That, you know, very good in engineering, but, you know, what they were concerned about, you know, were issues of, of social justice and how things worked. And so it was a great place for an education at that time and that place for who I was. So social justice was, was always part of it. And, you know, through reading and things like that, you know, I came to see that... Uh, the church could be a model of bringing in, well, a model for social justice, because social justice is not just a, a system of rules that one adopts. It, it, it really is preceded by a way of thinking or a, a sense of who one is as a person. And so that was kind of a, the, the thing that drove me, in a sense, you know, on to, to go to seminary. So. You, you end up going to Colgate, Rochester, Crozier Divinity School. And, and that, that has a very interesting history and a very rich, rich history in terms of social justice. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. had gone to Crozier. Howard Thurman had gone to Colgate, Rochester. Were you, were you intentional in choosing to go there? Or was kind of, it's in Rochester, you were in convenience. Syracuse? It was, it was convenience and, and pretty much that was the only seminary within probably several hundred miles. It turned out to be a very good place uh, because some of the faculty there, not, I mean, it was, a meth it was counted as a among a the Methodists as a viable seminary to pursue the requirements for, um, you know, a master's in divinity uh, within the Methodist system, even though it only had one Methodist faculty member. Because it's a Baptist institution. Essentially, yeah. There's also Presbyterian, uh, and you name it, but also it was a Catholic institution. Okay. You know, some of the professors that I had, some in particular, uh, a fellow by the name of Joe Torma, his big thing was social justice. And also, you know, there, there were people that were connected that knew Dr. King and had taught him and been at Crozier with him and so on. And again, you know, I was around the right people mm. because they saw, you know, biblical issues and things like that in terms of justice as well. Mm. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a religious training, although, you know, those things are, are part of it. You know, it's, it's also a community where, you know, the, the issues of justice do come up. This, this uh, fellow, Joe Torma, he was out there. I, he, he brought in very good readings, uh, that, you know, I think changed a lot of people in terms of their thinking about how the system works or doesn't work. And I, I remember one, one of the things, you know, that they did at that time was he connected me with a friend of his in the uh, diocese who was the social justice person there. And in New York State, there's a reservation, and the, the Seneca Indians, I think it was the Senecas, were there, and they worked at a mink farm that there were all these rumors about basically as being a slave labor camp where they worked with, you know, 
slaughtered mink and did that sort of raised and slaughtered, I guess, for the the pelts. And so uh, this fellow and I snuck in one night to see and to interview people. And it was everything it was. But I mean, those kinds of things, you know, open one's mind up to how things do or do not work in the system and what's allowed. You know, for some of us, those are necessary things to be part of. You're painting a a really intriguing and unexpected picture of divinity school for me. And I, I want to know if, did you get there and were you like, hallelujah, this is what I needed? No, I mean, when I went there, I had no, no idea what to expect. You know, I was just really fortunate. I mean, and, and, and maybe that's the whole story is I've been very fortunate in everything I've done. There've been g- great people who, uh, had done or seen or been part of probably great things. And they may not have mentored me, but they shared a lot. It's in some way they shared critical things and thoughts along the journey. And that's probably enabled me to to do what I've done. It's nothing about me, you know, other than if the door was open, I would walk through it. And still do. I mean, if the opportunity when, you know, when things come, I tend to walk, walk through the door. Mm. And say, well, it's open for a reason. I'll do it. With, without hesitation? Is it always like, yeah, that, I'm going. There's the, there's the door. It's open. I'm going to go. The hesitation increases the older you get because of uh. the uh, more responsibilities you have. So when, you, when you, the door is open, you, know, you have to look at what your responsibilities are, if you can go through the door, and realize that you know, you're, you're, you're dragging people with you at some level. But there are, door, there are doors within everything, every job. There's always a door to do kind of what would be considered social justice or what is right. Everybody has the opportunity to, to push that boundary in some way. I mean, that's the door. Whether they choose to or not is the question. How long were so, you in seminary? How long does that last? For the Masters in Divinity was, uh, I think it was three years. And then are you thinking you want to have your own congregation? Or that's just a possibility? You know, when, when I went to seminary, at least back in those days, they would assign you to a congregation, a small one. Okay. Basically, they needed people. Okay. You know, there's a supervising person, but not there. The, sort of the, there's a district superintendent that sort of rode herd over you to make sure you didn't screw up too badly. You know, you, you had pretty much free hand. And the, the, the churches, at least the churches I were at, were, were small rural ones. And poor, generally poor, and, and in poor communities, poor rural communities. And, and I really liked that. So for me, that was a very good fit. Uh, the problem with the Methodist system is that, you know, it's an appointment system. So there are times when the bishop says, okay, it's time to move on. Mm. And the idea is that you climb this ladder of bigger is better. Greg wasn't particularly interested in bigger or better. He'd been serving small congregations in rural New York State for roughly 15 years at that point, and it suited him. But since he didn't have a say in the matter, he put some feelers out, and via the diocese grapevine, he was encouraged to knock on the door of St. Mark's United Methodist Church in the French Quarter of New Orleans. If you remember the name Ruby Bridges, 
the little Louisiana black girl who in 1960 advanced the cause of civil rights as the first African-American to desegregate an elementary school in the South, you might be familiar with the work of St. Mark's. If the upstairs lounge fire of 1974 rings a bell, it's because St. Mark's was on the right side of the moral compass in that one, too. Founded in 1909, the church has a long history of supporting the same social justice causes that motivated Greg. So the door to an inner city congregation opens, and Greg, along with his first wife and kids, walked through it. So I asked him what it was like. That was great. You know, the problems of this are very, I mean, other than, you know, the issues of systemic racism and things like that, which, which you know, is very present and manifests itself in, in absolutely everything, pretty much. So that uh, when I went into the community center, I was the only white person there. The minute I walked in the door, it became a white institution just because of me. It, it brought all kinds of different relationships within the community because I was white. What do you mean by that? People would talk to, uh, I had access, probably partly because I was white, also because it was not necessarily from there. I was, I was not uh, somebody who was from there. Mm. And I was definitely not the best person for the, the job. I was just willing to do it. But it's certainly not because I was the right person for it. It would have been better for someone who was local and somebody who was black. The interesting thing was if outsiders came to you know, worship one day, they knew something was different there. And it was, it was about the interrelationships. Uh, they could sense a presence or something going on that was pretty unique. When I went there, it was, you know, during the whole subject of, you know, gay weddings came up and that sort of thing. And was starting to make the news and the church was, you know, churches were starting to saber rattle and do all kinds of things. And the Methodist church was horrible. Although there was a movement within it, a small movement that advocated, you know, doing the weddings and that sort of thing, and that was there. And St. Mark's was part of it, one of the early ones in it. At that point, if a, if a pastor was caught doing a, a wedding like that, they'd be tossed. What year is this? I went there in 95. Mm. When I was brought in to, to pastor, the person who was my supervisor said, do what needs to be done, but don't tell me. That sounds like a good setup for you. Oh, it was excellent. It was excellent. And I would tell her just, just, just to keep her caught up. And she would just say, please don't say, don't tell me this, don't tell me. But this person who was the Dupert superintendent and her husband was the one who sort of recruited me down there in the first place to get, try to get me there. They were high enough up in the system and they were well respected. You know, they saw the door to be open in different places and they would get through it somehow. Mm. You know, they would if they felt there needed to be a reconciling congregation, they you know, where weddings happened and people were sexual preferences and gender issues didn't matter. Mm -hmm. They were gonna make it happen if they could in their own little quiet way. Do you think there's something to the way that you I don't know if it's your, your mathematical or engineering brain. I don't know if it's just another part of you. I don't know if it's your education. I don't know if it's specific to you. But do you think there's something to your perspective, to the way that you, you look at things and you look for both problems and solutions and you look for doors where other people might not see them? 
I think part of it simply goes back to what's important to you. Okay. As a person. You're in New Orleans eight or nine years. Then what? So then I actually went to, was driving through Kentucky and saw a sign for the uh, Redbird Missionary Conference, which is a missionary area that the Methodist Church runs or has. Pulled out my cell phone and said, do you need anybody? And he said, yeah. So I went there. And I was separate. I was divorced at the time. So, uh, so it was easy to, you know, that was one where, you know, it's just me. It's easy to pull out the cell phone and say, I'll be there. And yeah, that, that's a place where I was just not a good fit. Was that the, the end of the road for you with ministry? It was the end of the road, not, not because of that. I mean, I realized that, you know, what they wanted was not what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were happy with me, but I, I was not happy with what they wanted me to be. No, what happened at the time was there was a situation uh, where I think it was a setup where basically uh, a person who was gay asked, sang in the choir, did all that stuff, finally asked to join the church. And the pastor said, no, wouldn't, can't do it. You can sing here, you can give your money, you can do whatever, can't join it. Oh. And the person, the individual went to the bishop, and the bishop sided with the person. And the Methodist system has this whole hierarchical thing of you can, you know, challenge things and you basically go before this high decision-making body. And the bishop got beat. And at that point, I thought, I don't want to be part of this thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really where it's at in the high levels of whatever. That's not where I want to be. And so when when I left, I went... You know, talk to the guy that was in charge of the uh, churches in the within the mission area, and he basically said, you know, he he kind of said, I knew you were going to leave. Mm-hmm. He said, I know you couldn't stomach that one. It's like my actor brain is lit up while I'm listening to him tell this story because, or tell these career changes because I'm thinking about. All of the times I have switched gears in the hopes that this will be fulfilling, this would be gratifying, this would be better, this will support my creative work. And sometimes I just wonder if it would just be easier to throw in the towel and like go back to corporate America. And he's not strung like an actor, but he's kind of living an actor's life in a way. A few years here, a few years here, a few years doing this, a few years doing that. He goes from pastoring to nursing to teaching in the prison system to what he's doing now, working for Habitat for Humanity, all with the thread of service. And I can't wrap my brain around why he's not just retired and and hanging out with the axe. So I ask him, why do you keep staying in service-oriented professions? What is this relentless need to be part of change that benefits others? There was an article that I read called Downward Mobility. Okay. And, and, and basically, you know, it, it, it's about the fact that the the serious, the person who's serious about, you know, in their minds, you know, they, they talked in terms of Christianity, but you know, the journey is, is about downward mobility. If you're going to work with the poor, if you're going to work for, you're not going for the corporate job, you're not going up for more money. 
The article Greg is referencing was written by a Jesuit priest, Father Dean Brackley, who coined the phrase downward mobility in direct contrast to the individualistic upward mobility offered by contemporary culture as the goal of life. In it, Brackley weighs the modern social implications of St. Ignatius' two standards, the way of Satan, characterized by things like covetousness, status symbols, the social ladder, arrogance, competition, and cover-up. Sounds a lot like capitalism at its worst to me. And the way of Christ, characterized by faith, indifference to honors, recognizing others' humanity, a community of equals, and cooperation. And he invites the reader to, quote, discover their vocation in downward mobility by setting aside the pursuit of wealth, prestige, and upward mobility in favor of walking with the victims, solidarity, and service. Though even he acknowledges for the modern human, that's a really scary request. But not for Greg. You know, having the yaks is really interesting, and I enjoy it. And, you know, part of me says, oh, I could just be a farmer. Of course, you can't make any money to survive. but I couldn't do it. I need the habit. I need the work of the habitat. I need to work with the other pe- the people, you know, who need the houses. That that sort of justifies the existence. I think the acts are just that's a nice thing, but what's important is what I'm doing with other people. But I think that's I think that you could pose that to most people, and they would say the same thing. Because if you ask people, you know, and you get them talking about when, you know, when was life really meaningful for you or, you know, something you did was really meaningful, usually it's about when they were doing something for somebody else. It comes down to those kinds of things. I think you have more faith in people than I do. Well, I have a lot of faith in I think there are a lot, there are a lot of people who are like that. And then I think there are a lot of people who are not. They just haven't dug through the dirt. I think the people who are not, if you could dig around with them for a while and chip away some stuff, you'd find it's there. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. The problem is everything else says go the other way. I mean, that's the problem. And, you know, you look at the political system or you look at the economics or you look at, you know, the advertising or whatever. It's all the other direction. And and it's getting worse. Yeah. What what comes to mind as you're talking is I think I've had this, um, I don't want to call it a preconceived notion because I don't know you at all, but just taking in your biography and, you know, sort of looking at the, at the, at the Yak Ranch and the website and the, and the Facebook page, I've thought this must be the most free-spirited person in the world. Yet it sounds to me like you're much more mission-driven than free, than sp- than free freedom, personal freedom driven. I would say so. I want to get to the act, but I I want to yeah. sort of wrap up, you know, phases one, two, three, four, five, and six of your <laughs> it's career not, changes. It's, not a phase. it's just it's just like a stream. It's all it is. What did nursing? I know you you worked in an ER and in a prison. What I want to I guess I want to know what you learned from from that or what you got back from that when i went into nursing part of it was the idea that i'd go abroad ah. and, and work in and that didn't work because i did get married so i was at a point where i also wanted to be in a position 
where I was doing something that was needed, good, or whatever, but I was I was sort of like just a pawn in the in the system kind of thing. I did mm-hmm. you know, I was not the one having to generate the budget, not the one yeah. doing the creative thing, you just like take care of this person. Do what I, you know. What I found was that I didn't like that. What I found was is that, you know, I'd go into the ER and everybody's talking on their cell phone. Mm-hmm. And the patients are there like, well, what the heck's going on? Here I, you know, it's like, you know, I need some help and you're and you're all on your phone. So that's the reality, and I understand that. And I really wasn't the kind of person that wanted to jump necessarily on the on the person. You know, there are nurses in the ER, and they are good, mm-hmm. and they they look they live for that person coming in the door that's just in horrible shape, and they're yeah. so good. I'm not. I was never good enough to do that. I could support them. I could take them when they. You know, I was sort of like round two for the person. Okay. You know, there there was an opportunity to to work in a prison and do healthcare. And so I went and did that. And you know, there 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 were all kinds of doors to walk through to try to make it better. And what happened was the more you walked through and closer the closer you were to walking out the door and being told not to come back. So uh, you know, and it was basically how you related to the inmates. You know, I would say I did a good job. Other people would say, you were the wrong kind of person for this place. Because mm-hmm. you know, you you didn't treat him the way you should have. You did too much. So, you know, I could see the handwriting on the wall. You know, we all parted on good terms. And then I went back a little later on and taught, class, taught uh, college math classes in there instead, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, that they could, t- they recognize, the, you know, the staff would recognize me and they say, you're back mm. uh, in this different capacity. And there you could, you could interact with the, the inmates and, you know, just, the people I met were just, and I'm talking about the inmates, just some phenomenal people. You know, they made some dumb mistakes. Mm. But I've, I've never taught people who are as excited about learning and who worked hard, as hard at it. And people that I'd really like to have to be my friend. I mean, they were just interesting, well-read. We did a physics class. We did a calculus class. We did a statistics class. And they loved it. I mean, they they were dangerous because they had all week to read these things and stuff. And I'd come in and I'd like, <laughs> gosh, I hope you don't ask that question. Because some of it, you know, I was trying, because we didn't have a lab. We did uh, a video series on uh, relativity and so on. They knew far more about it than I did. I mean, I could keep up with them. But these guys were well-read. And then you discover that, oh, yeah, I used to work in Thailand and I was the managing something for a corporation and you do that all that happened is he got up on drugs you know probably because okay. he made so much money he, the living got fast and he got caught or you find somebody that at age 17 they killed somebody in some drug thing and they straightened out and it's sad to see, you know and it's just sad to see him in there their time was served they had plenty of time to contribute to society and would love to have done it so let's talk yaks how did they come into your life? What happened was uh, back when I was in the Methodist Church, I was actually uh, on the board of ordained ministry that decides who gets in and not. Um, there was a fellow pastor who's, who's now a bishop, uh, Suda Devadar, who was from India. And uh, Suda said, you know, what we need to do is why don't you go over to India and travel to seminaries and talk to them about building relationships? 
So I spent a month traveling India and went to the seminaries and talked to it. But, you know, India is just like the most wonderful place. It mm. is just beyond uh, explanation. Mm. You remember, I don't know if you remember the film Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Well, you remember the, there's the point where he, when he comes back from Africa and they put him on the train and they say, right around the country and look. Yeah. I mean, I got to do that. I mean, and it's like just seeing, it's like going through so many different cultures. It, it was phenomenal. So later on, I would go back on my own and, uh, and go to different areas of, of India and so on to see what it was like. And uh, the last couple of times I went to northern India, to Dharamshala and the Kliya Ganj, and that's where the Dalai Lama is and the Tibetan refugees are. And really liked it there. Uh, and so it was in going there that, you know, I met Tibetan refugees and they talked about yaks and all that kind of thing and got me interested to the point that when I came back one time, I thought, well, I can try to find one. And so uh, I did. I found one in Ohio and a guy sold it to me. And turns out you can't buy one yak because they'll see you as a predator. So the first day was great. The second day, the thing tried to kill me. Nobody told you that before you bought one yak? No, no. I'm very interested in the sale, not the not all the little details. Okay. And there's a lot of misinformation and just, you know, ignorance about it. Anyways, I found some others out in Colorado from a guy that this guy knew and, and got him. And then I went to uh, the International Yak Show, which is out in Denver once a year. And got to, you know, meet talk to the real breeders. And that kind of got me started. And are you already, are you already living uh, on a property that can support you having an entire yak ranch or yak farm? Or? No, I don't live there. Uh, so we had bought a place just on the edge of the National Forest outside of Moorhead. And then, mm. you know, I had a couple acres, so it would sustain like a yak if I bought the hay. Okay. And it was clear that, like, if I'm going to buy yaks from out west, there's not enough room. So we we bought an old abandoned farm. Okay. And had been fixing that up. But there's no house there, so it sort of commute the eight miles to the farm. Where is Where does Linda fit into all this? Well, she certainly didn't expect any of this junk. Uh, I mean, we met when we were doing nursing. Okay. She's a registered nurse at University of Kentucky, then became a nurse practitioner. So we met sort of in the nursing days. And now okay. she went to India and uh, is a certified yoga instructor and Reiki master and gave up the nurse practitioner thing. And so she just does yoga. So she walked through her door. So I would say it's fair to say that most Americans don't know very much at all about yaks. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Although they will because, you know, Jeffree Star. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the cosmetic guy. Yeah. He's bought a ranch in Wyoming, and he is dead serious about yak ranching. And he's the guy who's going to bring it to the public. I had no idea about this. Oh, yeah. So what you need to do is Google Star Yak Ranch. Okay. And you'll see Jeffree Star with his yaks. Tell me about them. It's one of the oldest breeds. Mm. Two to five million years ago, basically your common cattle, 
species, the Bostaurus and bison, and what we know as uh, yaks, were all one species, and they kind of split apart over time. Okay. So in Tibet, the yak is sort of like the uh, bison was to the to the Native Americans. And the yaks, you could use them as pack animals. You could milk them. Uh, they they grow a, a fiber under their hair. So it's an insulating fiber, which is why they can tolerate the cold so well. And that, that fiber releases in the spring. It sort of puffs out and you can comb it out. It's the same as cashmere in quality. Here. Mm. Uh, and then the outer hair, you could use it to make ropes and things like that. And then the hides they use to make their tents. Uh, you know, of course, you know, as Europeans got involved in that sort of thing, they brought them to the zoos mm. and that sort of thing. They eventually made it to Canada, probably in the late 1800s. And they tried to crossbreed them with bison and things like that. Basically, they stayed up in Canada. There's sort of two different kind of yaks. There's the wild yak, which is known as Bos mutus, and it does, it's mute. And it's big. I mean, it stands like seven feet at the It's hump. mute, you said? Yeah, yeah. They are big animals. And then there's the domesticated yak, which is what we have. And that's the, it's, it's a different species. Mm. It's, it's called Bos grunions, and it's called the grunting ox because it grunts. It doesn't moo. Okay. It just sort of does this grunting that's kind of interesting. I am down the rabbit hole now of watching a yak on YouTube walk towards me. And baby is following, baby is following, grunting, grunting. Oh my goodness. Please do yourself a favor and go see these creatures anywhere you can. And and that was made basically as the wild yaks, you know, interbred with indigenous cattle tens of thousands of years ago. And then, you know, the, then also the people thousands of years ago did some breeding and stuff because they realized these smaller ones were a lot easier to deal with and, you know, you could train them and get more out of them. What attracted you to them? Especially because you said, you know, you weren't, attra- you weren't attracted to the, the horse life. You did, you did like cattle as a boy. I mean, part of it was just to see what one was like. And okay. well, this is interesting, you know, sort of as a project. Okay. Just sort of, kind of a fun amusement, you know, I was doing working at, at other things. So it was, I've got this, a couple acres. Why not put a yak on it? Okay. It. So they have a, an amazing personality. I mean, they, they are very bright and they all have their own personalities. Mm. And uh, so as an animal to interact with, they're very interesting. There's also a sense of, wi- you know, this kind of wisdom and age about them. Mm. I mean, there's something about them that just says there's something there. How are they doing in Eastern Kentucky? They they do well. The the difficult, you know, the, of course, we're low altitude. That hasn't yeah. been an issue. And it turns out that the, the as a species, they have adjusted to lower altitudes. What they eat is different. So, in that, if I took one of my yaks to the Himalayas, it probably would die. So, what is your life like with the yaks? Do you visit with them every day? Do they need I go, you? Oh yeah, yeah. I have, I see them every day, but you know, I you know get up in the morning. Sometimes I like stop at the farm on the way and just you just check everybody because you know the, the thing about yaks is they're very good at looking stoic and healthy, mm. but boy, when they get sick, when they look sick, they're gonna die. How many yaks do you have? Uh, we've got about eighty-five on the property. 
Is that the most in the state, in the area, in the region? In, in Kentucky, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. For, for the east, that's one of the larger herds. So what's the goal? For, for the yaks? For the ranch, for the yaks, for you and the yak <laughs> together. Survive it. Um, I think it's uh, a couple things. One, it, it, and it's turned. Again, it's a door that's open. Is One is to really work on the science side mm. and, and get the right information out there. So there are people who know the right things to do and study and also the wrong things that aren't good. And so that's, you know, try to hook up with those people and allow yak production or raising yaks to be a much more viable industry. Uh, the other thing about them is yak meat goes up in value where, you, you know, beef goes up and down and people have to sell out every couple of years because mm-hmm. the bottom's dropped at the market in the yaks, partly because there's so few of them. The, the demand always exceeds the supply once people know that the meat's there. So, you know, in terms of a sustainable income for small farmers, it makes a lot of sense. And the other side, you know, from the meat side, and I'm not a big meat eater, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, but the yak meat uh, is higher protein, it's leaner than bison, and, you know, it has some omega-3 oils and things like that. So as a red meat goes, it's probably about the healthiest you're going to get. I've, I've read that yak milk is potentially a superfood. Is that true or false? I would say yak, you know, your yak milk is probably going to be like the Jersey cow milk, real rich. Okay. High fat. Okay. So one of the things, I mean, you know, one of my toy ideas, I don't want to, you know, I would love, love to produce some yak milk, but to get my head kicked in for a pint of milk is not something I really crave doing. But if I crossed a, <laughs> if I could cross a yak with a Jersey and get a gallon of milk that was half yak, half Jersey, okay. you know, that would be interesting. I think there are things like that that can be done, but somebody's got to be stupid enough to go through the door and do them. So beyond this really incredibly interesting way that the yaks kind of touch on all of your, I want to call them, all of your talents and your smarts in different arenas and the potential for service, you know, to to the region, the potential for helping the region. Is there something that the yaks like provide for you that you don't get anywhere else from any other source? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's something magical about uh, sort of just being with them or farming type stuff. It, it It's just a good space to be. Mm. It, it, for me, it's sort of a comfort space. I mean, it's just, it's being, you know, on the land, sort of with the land, with the animal. Yeah, that's kind of where we're supposed to be at some level. Mm. Do you now or do you have any plans to allow visitors to the ranch? Oh, visitors? Yeah, I mean, I had somebody call me today and they said, we want to do a meet and greet with your yaks. <laughs> and I said, what? Yes, a meet and greet. We read about it. And I thought, where did you read that thing? Oh, we read about it. And we went on and on. Well, it turns out the guy who lives near us, he's got a and b And he put that in oh. his brochure. Oh. And I said, he can do the meet and greet with the yaks. I said, they'll greet you with their horns, you know. Because, <laughs> you know, they know, they know me and they know strangers. I mean, they, and they yeah. differentiate and they'll behave totally differently. Okay. They're not going to 
knock them with their horns, but they're not going to come up and ask for kisses either. And, and you know, my yaks aren't a bunch of pets. Mm-hmm. Will this be the next phase of your professional life? Will it be always just a hobby? Will you retire into this life on the land with the, the yaks? How, how do they fit into Greg and Linda's future? Well, I'm 70 years old. <laughs> wow. So, you know, what I would like to see is to stabilize the farm more, to get the business side of it so it's, you know, self-sustaining and stuff. And then, you know, hopefully somebody, you know, one of my kids or somebody will say, well, I'll, 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 I'll take that over and run it mm. or whatever. It sounds like the potential is there for somebody to walk through the door. I want to ask you just a few rapid fire questions before we end, which are sort of, um, you know, don't, don't think. Say the first thing that comes to your mind. The first one is a fill in the blank. Change requires blank. I, I mean, I would say uh, belief, not, oh. and I'm not talking about religious belief. I'm talking about, you know, belief in the importance of the change. Mm-hmm. Or I would use the word desire with, with the same kind of idea or. Okay, this is what the answer is. Okay. Change requires knowing it's the right thing to do. And that's what it requires. You've got it, you've, you have to, so it means you've bought into it internally. And this, this is it. This is the right decision. Great. If you could go back in time and change one thing and only one thing about your past, what would it be? Well, I mean, the, the one thing I would say maybe instead of engineering school, to go to vet school. Uh, wow. But every step of the way makes you a, a person that you wouldn't be and puts you in a position you wouldn't be if you'd done the other thing. You know what I mean? And so... Yeah. yeah. I guess, I guess that, you know, the thing that I wouldn't have done, I would have treated some people differently. You know, it would have been more on that level. But the big things... Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to have given up where they got me. You're gonna have you're gonna have a field day with this one because I know you. I know how you feel about the state of the world. What is one thing, big or small, you would like to see change in the world? Let's see. Do I get like uh, 435 <laughs> changes or something like that? And a couple and a couple extras thrown in, or you can nine pick your, your top two. I won't stop you. I might edit you, but I won't stop you. Uh, okay, so one would be that those in power, and you can define power however you want, mm-hmm. and, and people in general, okay? So people, and it includes those people, would really see and understand and appreciate what climate change is bringing us to, to the point that it would actually do something. I mean, to me, that... You know, there are all kinds of huge problems in the world. But when you destroy the planet, you've had it. The other thing, and, I had, and, the, and, and the environmental could come in this, the climate change, is uh, genuine respect for each person's life. Mm. If everybody respected and, va- and valued every person's life, it'd all be done. How you see life, not just people, but whales and algae or whatever, the value and the intrinsic worth and the preciousness of it all, then the rest of the problems will work out quickly. 
Yeah, lots of dominoes would fall from that one. That's a tough one. But you know, the, why does why does you know why isn't there medicine? Why isn't there housing? Why isn't there climate? You know, the the interest in climate change is because people don't care about the consequences for others. I mean, that's bottom line. Yeah, you know, if we cared about the people, we'd do something. But so you know, let the people you know on the islands drown. So what? And not me. So then the question becomes. If that's what we see mm-hmm. and understand and believe that, okay, that's the state of things, then that throws a hundred open doors in front of us. And the question is, okay, is it mean enough to go through it and do what needs to be done? Yeah. That's the question. Let's, yeah, let's let that question live out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. What is one thing, big or small, you hope never changes? So can this be like a human characteristic? Of course. It can be anything. I guess uh, the possibility of change, you know, where all of a sudden it grabs us, is always there. Mm. How often do you change your toothbrush? Oh, I'm bad. I wear it out. (laughs) Six months? Nine months? Oh, I can probably wear them out in six months. Okay. I'm curious about this one. I, I think I probably have a guess, but are you primarily, knowing that we are all aspects, we all have aspects of each of these, are you primarily a change maker, a change seeker, or a change resistor? Or a change, what was the last one? Resistor. Resistor? The best things I've done have never usually been my idea. Hmm. I'm the one who will hear or see something uh, that probably somebody else innocently said and think, I can do that. Mm. Or I can make that happen. Mm. I think I hear a lot of change maker in you. And I think I hear a subcategory though of change facilitator, knowing how to open the channels or keep the channels open or put the right plug in the right socket. And that's, that's special. Here's the last one. What does your next change look like? And feel free to be aspirational or fantastical or imaginative. And selfish too, Greg. You could be a little selfish yeah, yeah, yeah. if you want. I, I think it's figuring out how to go back into something that has to do with the environment. I have no doubt the opportunity will, will present itself and you will see the door and you will walk through it. Maybe the yaks will have something to whisper in your ear over the next oh, yeah. few weeks yeah. Yeah. or a few months. They may. You never know. Thank you for thank you for really sharing this, I think, overriding metaphor of opening, walking through the door and just sharing your time with me. I think you have such an interesting story and I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. Okay, well, you're welcome. And if you're ever in uh, this part of Kentucky, come out and visit the Axe and hang out with us. I will. I will. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You take care. Shift Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall, and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. 
please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at PradeFoundation.org and at TCOMConversations.org. And by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.